Uh, it's great to be back, and uh, we planned our vacation a little bit differently this year. Typically, we go away, and we're gone for about three weeks or so, and, and so that we can stay until like the last second, you know, and then get in the car, and then race home, and then be home maybe on Thursday, and I'm still able to, to preach on Saturday now, and then also on Sunday. Usually, what I do is we go away, and I put a message together while we're gone so that we can race back and then jump full speed back into life and all that stuff, and I said this year, you know what, I'm not going to do that. We've got a great team of people. I'm just, I'm just not going to work at all for the most part, which I didn't. I answered a few emails, a few phone calls. That's it the entire time. And we came back on like a Wednesday and I was like, man, I, I don't really have to be anywhere, which is awesome. And so we rolled into church last Sunday and just came to one of the three services and sat and I didn't have to sit in the front row, which by the way, for me is glorious because I am not, believe it or not, a front row person. God bless those of you who are front row people. Just none of the rest of us are like you. Just know that. All right. We're thankful for you, and I think it would be kind of interesting if you just moved back row, row by row, week by week, you'd push us all the way out the back door, okay? But I didn't have to do it, and I could just sit with my family and kind of just take it in, and, and it was awesome. And I was just like thanking the Lord and saying, Lord, this is amazing. And it's amazing, maybe some, because I've missed being home, and this is home for me, but it was cool for me to sit there and go, you know, I had nothing to do with this service, and Matt was gone, he had nothing to do with the service, and Ryan was gone, he had nothing to do with the service, and it killed it, like it was amazing. And I I just want you to know that I know, and I also want you to know, that God is doing a work here. He is building a ministry, a church, and a school that is not built on a person or a personality or a group of people or a group of personalities. He's raising up a very diversely gifted group of people and by His Word, in accordance with His Gospel, and by His Spirit, He is doing the work in us, through us, in spite of us. And it's just awesome to be some small part, whatever part that may be, in regard to what he's doing. And some of us, you know, do more upfront stuff like I'm doing now. And some of us do stuff that goes almost completely unnoticed, except by the Lord. But all of us are contributing in very, very significant ways. And it's just wonderful to be a part of that kind of a church and that kind of a ministry. And it's awesome too now to return to our study of this book of 1 Corinthians that we started, I think, on Palm Sunday and that I hope has been a real blessing to you. And it's cool to come back and to come to chapter 15. So 1 Corinthians 15, if you've done your personal worship, if you've been following along, if you were here last week, just so you know, if you've missed it, it is one of the most significant chapters, not just in this book, but in the whole of the Bible, and it is about the topic of resurrection, not, by the way, meaning just the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's where Paul starts, and we'll go there in a second. But it's about resurrection in general. It's about the resurrection of Jesus and the implications of that for everyone who believes in Jesus, meaning it is also about the resurrection of every person who in this world and in this life dies with faith in the resurrected Jesus. And the bottom line of which is when Jesus returns, and look, He's come once as He promised to do. We call that Christmas. He keeps His promises when He comes again as He's promised to do like Christ, was literally, physically, actually, bodily raised from the dead, so then also will be everyone who is inextricably linked to Christ by faith. Not only has He risen, 
but we will rise. And Paul has this conversation with this first century church that he planted in the city of Corinth because after he left that church and he went to the city of Ephesus, which is where he's writing from, he got wind of the fact that they had devolved in their theology, at least in regards to this issue of the resurrection of the dead. And in fact, they had gotten to the place where they denied that any resurrection from the dead for anyone, even Jesus, was possible. And so he's writing to them and going, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, guys, you don't understand Resurrection is central. It is, as Sam said last week brilliantly, the core of the Christian faith. You do away with that, we're done. He said, look, if there's no resurrection from the dead, as you people in Corinth are saying, well, then Jesus isn't raised from the dead. And if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, I'm going to stop wasting ink writing to you right now. I just, I need to get out and live because this is the only life there is. We're done if he's not raised from the dead. And you're dead in your sins, he says. But then he said, no, but, but he is raised from the dead. And that was something that was a lot easier to gain agreement on in his day than it is to gain agreement on in our day. I understand that for the simple reason, as he points out in his letter, and as Sam pointed out in his message, that as of the writing of that letter, there were hundreds if not thousands of people still alive who had with their eyes seen the risen Jesus, who had with their ears heard Him speak. They sat out in crowds and listened to Him preach. They sat down with Him, interacted with Him. They shared meals with Him. They touched the newly resurrected body of the newly resurrected resurrected Jesus, and these people could not unsee or unexperience, if you will, what they had seen and experienced, and in fact wouldn't. Many, many, many of them, including the Apostle Paul, though long after the writing of this letter, died torturous deaths, guys, defending the reality of a risen Christ. In other words, the Romans wanted to stop Christianity. The Jews wanted to stop Christianity. And so they started gathering up all these people who were going around spreading this false rumor about Jesus being raised from the dead. And they said, look, we're going to give you two options. Okay, so two doors. Door number one. Door number one, you maintain your testimony that you actually saw and heard and touched the risen Jesus. And we kill you in any one of a number of incredibly excruciating and creative ways. So let's just roll out some possibilities for you. We can cut your head off. That's how Paul died. Frankly, I think that was the best of the options. It's fast. But who looks forward to that? We can crucify you. That's how Peter died. In fact, they crucified him upside down. That doesn't sound like fun. My personal favorite is we can impale you on a stake, a pole that we put into the ground and sharpen to a tip. So we can impale your body on that. And then we can coach you like in some tar, and then we can set you on fire, and then you can be a human candle at one of our dinner parties. That's a possibility. Then, of course, there are the Colosseums and the wild animals and all. We can throw you to the lions, literally. What do you think? So door number one is you maintain your testimony in Jesus, and you die in any one of those or some other really creative, horrific ways. Or door number two You get up in front of all of these people that you've been telling that Jesus is raised to, and you say, you know what, I I think I was just crazy that day or something. I didn't actually see what I saw. I, I, I didn't actually experience all the stuff that I've been telling you is a total lie. And that is the door of life for you. And person after person, man after man, woman after woman said, hey, you know what, here's the deal. I can't unsee what I've seen. I I can't unhear what I've heard. I can't pretend like I didn't experience what I experienced. And here's the deal. I've met the door to life. And it's not your options.
His name is Christ. I have seen one who has defeated death. So listen, even though I'm not overly excited about dying in one of your peculiarly you know, horrific ways, the reality is, what can you take from me that he will not, in the end, give back? Nothing. And person after person, they laid down their lives. Who does that? if it's a lie. So Paul said, look, I know you guys, you're just, you're just way off base. So no resurrection of the dead? That's crazy. He says, what about Jesus? Jesus is raised from the dead. Do I need to reintroduce you to all of these people who saw him? Oh, oh and what about me, Paul says? I saw him. And today now he builds on this argument. He says, okay, Jesus is raised from the dead, point A. Point B is, here's what the necessary implication of that is for all of those of us who are connected to him in faith. Every person who dies in this world and this life with faith in that resurrected Jesus will, upon the return of Jesus, and he'll lay out the sequence of events, be raised like Jesus was raised. Actually, physically, bodily, literally. And what I want to get you to see before we jump into the text itself is the reason Paul is teaching us all of this. Because he's not teaching us all of this because he thinks we'll be interested in it. He's not coming and going, hey, let me give you a heads up on some of this stuff. You know, I think it'd be interesting for you to know and thought you might find it to be kind of a cool lunch conversation that this is how it's all going to play out for you in the end. Let me explain resurrection to you. I know you have a lot of questions. and That's not it. Now, we have questions and the explanation is helpful. But Paul is never explaining anything to us simply to satisfy our intellectual curiosities and answer our theological questions. He explains things to us that we might be changed by them. It's not information, it's transformation that he's after. And so he's coming to them and us, and he's, he's not just saying, let me correct your errant thinking. He's saying, let me correct your errant thinking so that you then can correct, by the power of God's Spirit, your errant living. He's after life Change And it's where he ends this part of the passage that we'll look at today. And it's where we'll end. So I'm going to give you the question that we're going to end with up front. It's this. What difference should the reality of a risen Jesus and the reality of our own forthcoming resurrection upon his return make on the way that we live today? And every day between now and the day that we're planted in the ground. What difference should it make because if you miss everything else, please just at least know this. It should make a profound difference. So, with all that in mind, we pick up our study in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're beginning in verse 20, where Paul says this. So he reasserts point A. He says, but in fact, Christ has, there it is, been raised from the dead. Okay, And then he uses a very important word to now transition into how he's going to build on this. He calls Christ the firstfruits. That's the word of those who have what? Who have fallen asleep. Now, what does he mean when he talks about somebody who's fallen asleep here? He is not talking about believers in Jesus who are taking a nap. You know, they're crashed out on the hammock. It's Sunday afternoon. That's what we did. It's not it. He's talking about believers in Jesus who have died and, and who have been buried at this point. Guys, Paul, in the whole of the New Testament, comes to us with a different vision of death, at least for believers in Jesus. It refers to death on our part, for those of us who believe in Christ, as a form of sleep. And what is sleep? It's something we expect one day to wake up from, and that's the whole point. But why do we expect that? Well, Paul's explaining it to us. He's coming to us and saying, okay, Jesus is risen, and here's what you need to know. 
That resurrection of Christ is not a disconnected event. In other words, it doesn't just stand on its own. Oh, wow, Jesus is risen. No, it's connected to everyone who is inextricably connected to him by faith. And its necessary implication is that, well, just as Jesus was raised, I will be raised. You will be raised. He calls him the first fruits. What is that? Because I'm not a farmer. Are you? It's an agricultural analogy that they understood. He calls him the first fruits, which is the first part of a whole field, a whole harvest that ripens first and thus is the first to be harvested. But you don't have to be a farmer to think about a harvest, do you? I mean, think about it. Where's the rest of the harvest? The rest of the harvest that was planted on the same day in the same soil, watered with the same water, receiving the same sunlight, all the same fertilizer, all the same tending to, all the same insecticides. If the harvest has gotten to the point where part of it is ripened and can be harvested, where's all the rest of it? Because it's a statement on where we are right now. It's standing in the field waiting to be harvested next. And is that not the whole point of a harvest? It's to harvest it. And Paul's coming to us and saying, listen, Jesus is the first fruits of that harvest and God has harvested the first fruits. The rest of the field, that's us, is standing there waiting to be harvested. And just as God harvested the first fruits, He will harvest me and He will harvest you. He will harvest everyone who is buried in faith in Christ. It necessarily requires our own resurrection. So then he goes on to develop that point beginning in verse 21 where he says this. He says, For as by a man, and the man that he's referring to, if you've done your personal worship and just read the next sentence, you know is Adam. Now who is that? He's the father of humanity. He's the first man. He's the one from whom we all descend physically and from whom we inherit not just our bodies, our flesh, our bone, but our nature, our corruption, our brokenness, our depravity, our sinfulness, our selfishness, all of these things, they come from Adam and they are in fact inherited. Let me just think it through practically for a second. Listen, nobody had to teach you how to sin. If you're a parent, I don't even need to continue to explain this, do I? I mean, I've talked about this in the past, but like you don't teach your kids to be selfish. They just are. And like, it's kind of astonishing when you have your first child and about age, you know, six weeks, they throw this temper tantrum and you think to yourself, good grief, where is this coming from? From this innocent, that's the wrong word, isn't it? From this innocent, no, 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 not innocent. From this innocent, like, you want to use that word. It's not innocent. He's selfish. You don't teach your kids to be disrespectful. Hey guys, tonight... I'm going to teach you how to be disrespectful toward mom. And I know this is going to be hard for you. You know, it's going to feel awkward and unnatural and we're going to have to role play. No, no, don't resist me on this. I know you don't want to do this, but I'm going to have to teach you this because it's important you learn how to be disrespectful toward mom. That doesn't work that way. They just are. And your job as a parent is to try to call that out of them, isn't it? It's to try to correct them. Let me ask you something. Why do we have police departments? Why is there an FBI? Homeland Security, what's the deal with that? Why do we have armies? Why, if we're born good? We're not. We're not by nature good. And we know it. And everything in life confirms it. 
And what's the end result of it? It's death. And not, not just physical death, certainly that's what he's referring to here, but death of all kinds. Death of relationships. Our selfishness devours our relationships. Death of conscience. What we do destroys our conscience. Death of reputation, etc., etc. We can all walk through the stories of our lives and show all manner of death in every single one of them that has happened. But death of body too, that part of our being too, has been corrupted. We inherit that. And as we get older, just trust me on this one, if like you're under 30, okay, you decline despite all efforts to the contrary. And Paul lays hold of that which we know, and he says, all right, so here's the deal. For as by a man, this man Adam, came death, by a man also, is the idea, has come the resurrection of the dead, and that man is Christ. He says, for as in Adam all die. We don't talk about it, we don't think about it, we suppress it until we come to a funeral, and we realize, yeah, I guess this day will come for me too. Look, the mortality rate is 100%, for as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive in resurrection from the dead. And you say, but when will we all be made alive in resurrection from the dead? Well, Paul says, here it is. Each in its own order. Let's go back to the field. Let's go back to the farm. Let me go back to the analogy. Christ, the firstfruits. Newsflash, that happened. That's occurred already. And then when? At His coming, which is yet in the future, those who belong to Christ by faith, and you say, all right, well, you know, I mean, if I'm following along with you, Tom, and I'm just kind of going with the argument here for a second, then what happens? I mean, what's the next thing that happens? Because now we're all raised. Well, great, and? Raised to what? Raised to a new life, as we sang this morning. Paul answers it here. He says, well, then comes the end. And here's what he means by that. The end of absolutely everything that you and I long, 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 long in this life to see come to an end. So what is that for you? Let me give you a list. It's non-exhaustive, like there's so many other things. Then comes the end of injustice and oppression. The end of disease and racism. The end of sorrow and betrayal. The end of abuse and divorce. The end of depression and deceit. The end of corruption and chaos. The end of struggle. The end of suffering. The end of all of the kinds of, of things that we've watched play out in our nation over the last four weeks and frankly over the whole of this year and not just the nation but the world. The end of sin and of every form of death that sin gives birth to. And sin is so creative in its birthing capacities. Paul says, well, then comes the end, guys. Here's what happens at that end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God, all authority in heaven and on earth, we're told by Matthew before Jesus ascends, is given to, to Christ. And Christ will deliver that back to God the Father after, first is the point, destroying every evil rule and every evil authority and every evil power. For Jesus, he says, must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when is that? On that day when death is defeated in resurrection for God's people. For God has put, Paul says, all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. And I used to read that and think, hmm, that's kind of an interesting image. I'm not sure that I understand it until several years ago, I went with a group 
not just to Israel, but also to Egypt. It was about four months before the Egyptian revolution in 2011, if you remember that. And we traveled to do one of our study tours. Dr. Gage and I led the tour. So we went to Israel and then we tacked on like three days, two nights in Egypt. And we flew into Cairo at night, which was kind of an interesting experience. I was looking out of the window. And as you look out of the window at night, as you fly into Cairo, Egypt, what you see everywhere are the lit up green spires of mosques, just littering the landscape. It was kind of interesting. We flew in and we got on a bus and we went to Giza, which is where the pyramids are located, and we stayed at a converted palace uh, called the Mena House, which was awesome. I think it's probably the nicest thing that I saw, at least, the whole of the time that I was in Egypt. And I remember I was with my daughter Morgan, who's our oldest, and I think maybe she was like a junior or something at the time in high school. And, uh, and we went up to the eighth floor. I have no idea why I remember that, but I do. And we follow the guy who's bringing our luggage, you know, and he, he walks into this room, and it was a huge room, palatial, I guess. And it had these massive windows, these big picture windows, but they were closed with the curtains. And I'm thinking, I'm going to bed, you know, so leave them shut. But the guy walks in ahead of us, and he starts throwing open the curtains. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to have to close those things, you know. But as he opened the curtains... I realized that about 400 yards on the other side of that window was the Great Pyramid lit up with lights at night, and it was awesome. Like, that was maybe the coolest moment of the whole piece of the Egyptian trip. But we went to the Cairo Museum, and Warren is kind of an Egyptologist. He's an expert in all kinds of things, but certainly in all things Egypt. And he took us, and he walked us around and yelled over the din of the crowd because it was really loud and crazy. But, but I remember two of the things that we looked at. One was the footstool of the pharaoh of Egypt, of King Tut, actually, and then also the sandals that he would wear. And Warren took us over to the footstool to where he would place his feet when he sat on his throne and to the sandals that he would wear on those feet. And he said, let me show you the images on the top of this footstool upon which the king would put his feet. And he said, the images are the images of the four inveterate enemies of Egypt. So when the king sat on his throne and he put his feet on his footstool, he literally, at least emblematically, placed his feet upon his enemies. They were put under his feet, but not only that, when he got off the throne and walked around in his sandals, yeah, there were two enemies on the left sandal, two enemies on the right. And so literally everywhere that the king tread, he was walking upon his enemies. That's the image that Paul's employing. And he's saying, look, if you're impressed with Pharaoh, well, you know, let me introduce you to the real king. The one who has defeated sin and death. The one who is putting all things under his feet. His enemies and ours. And who will bring them all to submission in the end. God, the Father, is putting all things under the feet of Christ. How is he doing that? Because it speaks to how we therefore then should live. He's doing it by his gospel. He's doing it through His Spirit. And He's doing it through a community of people who understand that death is defeated. That there's nothing you can take from us that He won't give us back in spades and for all of eternity. And who realize that everything we build in this life except God's kingdom is going to die. And who unite around the fact that, good grief, we don't have a lot of time. And we need to do everything we can to advance the kingdom of Christ. So then Paul continues, verse 27, second part, and he says, But when it says, 
that all things are put in subjection under Jesus' feet. It's plain that He, meaning God the Father, is accepted from that list of things put under the feet of Jesus. For He, God the Father, is the one who Himself has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. And in fact, when all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son of God, who Himself is Jesus, will also be subjected to God the Father, who put all things in subjection under Jesus. And just don't miss this last part, because it's the goal of the whole of the created order, so that God the Father, what? May be all in all. Okay, I know that you feel right now like Paul just picked up a a theological handful of spaghetti and threw it at you, right? So, I mean, you're with it, you're with it, and then the ear starts smoking, and it's like, man, could you just make your point? It's just, it's hard to kind of fish through that, quickly at least. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that God the Father, through God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, He is the God-man. He is the invisible, incomprehensible God who clothed Himself in our humanity through His supernatural conception. He took upon real flesh, a real man, that God the Father, through the real man Jesus, is accomplishing what Adam, the first sinless man, failed to accomplish in his sin. And what is that? Well, it is to fill this world with a community of people for whom God is all in all. And it is to subdue the created order, including that of sin and death, to put it under His feet. That's the commission of Adam. You know that. If you recall our studying it not too many months ago. Listen to what God said to Adam in Genesis 1.28 and just follow that commission. It says, and God blessed them, meaning Adam and Eve, the parents of humanity, and God said to them, and here it comes, mandate number one, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. But with what? With people. With a worshiping community of people who perfectly love and serve God, for whom God is all in all. That's the idea. And then mandate number two is to subdue it, to rule over it. And he speaks of that subduing in terms of the beasts of the earth, which is a phrase I use intentionally. He says, have dominion, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But if you know the story, what happened? Well, Adam, who was supposed to rule over the beasts, is ruled over by one of the beasts. So mandate number two, shattered. And he was ruled over by the serpent who was the evil one, who tempted him to sin, and indeed he fell into sin. And in his sin, he brought corruption to the entirety of the human race and effectively then filled the world, not with a group of people, who all, you know, say, hey, God is all in all, but, I mean, I'm just going to describe us all. I'll start with me, but it applies to everybody. He's filled the world full of people who, like all of us, if we're really, really honest, and are honest about the way that we live, uh, for whom we are all in all. And we'd really just love it if everybody else would figure that out, including God. Don't you agree? Mandate number one, ruined everything corrupted and fallen apart. And what's fascinating is that if you then begin to look at how animals are portrayed in the Bible, you realize that that the beasts of the Bible become really metaphoric expressions of human wickedness and of wicked human people. I'll give you examples. So you go to the next chapter, Genesis 3, Adam falls. Genesis 4, you have the first murder and you have Cain who entices his brother Abel to come out into the field so nobody can be around when he, what, kills him. And John in 1 John says that Cain was like the evil one. What is that? He's like the serpent. 
You have Ishmael, the wicked half-brother of Isaac, who mocks Isaac, the son of promise, and is referred to as a wild donkey. You have Esau, the wicked and faithless brother of Jacob, who's compared to a goat. You have Jacob's sons who take Joseph, throw him in a pit, pull him up, and then sell him into slavery in Egypt, and they are said to have then devoured him. They are said to have behaved like wild beasts. Pharaoh is called a twisting serpent. Goliath, who fought David. Okay, well... He's dressed in a scaly armor. Read the description. He's described as being like a serpent. The religious leaders of the Jews who coerce politically Pilate into crucifying Christ are called by John a generation of vipers. And Pilate himself is called by Jesus a fox. And even Paul, in this same passage of Scripture, we'll see it in just a minute, is going to talk about how he fought beasts at Ephesus. Well, what is he talking about? Surely he's not saying, I was thrown into the Colosseum and there I faced the lions. Because if that had happened, this letter would not have been written. You don't typically walk away from that. And more than that, he's a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens were exempt from that kind of execution. He's talking about men who opposed the gospel, who were violently opposing him in the city of Ephesus, and he refers to them as beasts. And so what Paul is saying here is that when Jesus returns and the dead are raised, mandate number one will be fulfilled because every continent of this world will produce a people for whom God is all in all. And on that same day, the entirety of the created order, including all sin and every manner of wickedness and death, will be finally and fully subdued and defeated. God is accomplishing through Jesus what Adam and his sin failed to accomplish. But Paul's not telling us all of this for our information. He's telling us all of this for our transformation. And so he shifts gears in this next verse, verse 29, to real-life practices. And he gives us this frankly odd statement. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all, as you people are saying? He's saying to them, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, so here's the deal. Everyone wants to know what that means, and no one knows for sure what that means. Nobody. There's a multitude of different theories. I think maybe the best theory is a theory that said that in that church in Corinth, you might have had people who became believers in Jesus but died before they were baptized. And so then you had other believers in Jesus coming and going, well, you know, I, I think he would have liked to have been baptized before he died, but since that didn't happen, can I be a surrogate for him? Can I be baptized in his place? You say, well, is there any biblical warrant for that? I mean, that sounds a little bit crazy. No, there's no biblical warrant for that, and it does sound a little bit crazy. Is there any practice in the history of the church of this kind of thing happening? No, there's no practice in the history of the church of this kind of thing happening, and all we have is this really odd little statement made in this that no one knows exactly what it means. But thankfully, you don't have to to follow Paul's argument because he's not saying this in order to affirm or to denounce whatever this practice is. He's simply pointing to this practice in this church full of people who denied that Jesus is risen. And he's saying, wait a minute, you're denying resurrection of Christ and of anybody else on the one hand, and then you're baptizing people for the dead on the other hand. Why would you do that? Because that is a practice that affirms what you claim to deny. Paul's life, however, was utterly consistent with the affirmation of the resurrection. And it's to his life that he turns next. And I want you to consider what life is like for him because it speaks 
to the kind of effect this should have on the way that we live. He says, why are we, meaning I, Paul, and these other people doing ministry with me in this city of Ephesus, in danger how frequently? Because it's unrelenting. Every hour we're in danger. Not every other couple of days, not every other couple of weeks, not even every other hour. Every hour we're in danger. That's crushing. He goes on, he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die. That's extreme language. At least in some sense I die. He's saying how many days? Every single day, not every other day, every couple of weeks I die. It's kind of costly. It's an irritating day. Every day, he's like, why would I do this if Jesus isn't raised, who I saw, incidentally, with my own eyes? And why would I do this if I will not one day be raised? Like, if this really is the only life that I get to live, I die, I'm buried, I'm done, that's it? Every hour, every day? How about no hours of no days? I'd be out living it up for me, which is where he's going. And which makes perfect sense apart from the resurrection. He continues, he says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, with these violent men who oppose me here? What's my gain in that? Why would I do that apart from the resurrection? He says, If the dead are not raised, well, then here's the logical way to live. Let us eat and let us drink, for tomorrow we die, and then that's it for us for forever. So let's go. But it's not the gospel. It's not what he believes. And so he corrects that thinking. He says, do not be deceived, because that's what you are when you deny the resurrection, Paul's saying. Bad company, like the company of people who deny the resurrection, Paul's saying, ruins what? Because it's behavior. It ruins good morals. It ruins the way that you live. Why? Because the way that you live is affected by what you believe in terms of the resurrection. And so he says to them and us, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, as would be right for you to do, and do not go on, and here it is, and it has to do with behavior. The way that you live, do not go on sinning as those do for whom there is no future. Oh, this is the only life I have. Well, I better get as much as I can. And then get out there and tell people about Jesus, Paul says. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. All right, that's where we stop. That's where we'll pick up next week, but let's rehearse for a second. Okay, so let's redevelop his argument. He, he began by saying, hey, you know what? Jesus is really risen. And he ended his life by saying, oh, hey, you know what? Jesus is really risen. So go ahead and cut my head off because I saw him. He holds the keys of life and death. Death has been defeated in the man Jesus, and not just for him, but point two, for me and for you and all of us who are buried in this world and in this life in faith in Christ. We fall asleep in death. We expect confidently to wake up because, in fact, Christ is risen and we are inextricably linked to him. And by the way, when he returns and the dead are raised, point three, what happens? Well, mandate number one is immediately fulfilled and that the world is filled with a raised people for whom God is all in all. Oh, and mandate number two, also fulfilled for Christ has subdued all enemies under His feet. You see? Everything we long to see end on that day will finally and fully end. But last point, we end where we began. Why is He telling us all this again? Because it's not to, to give us something interesting to talk about at lunch. Though I, I think it's interesting, but... 
But it's not the point. It's to affect the way that we live. So here's the question we started with. What difference should the reality of a risen Jesus and the reality of our own forthcoming resurrection make in the way that we live today? And I think there's lots of answers. But generally speaking, first of all, I think it should compel us to sacrifice everything if necessary. For what can this world take from us that we will not receive back in spades and eternally so to participate in Jesus' program of filling this world with a people for whom God is all in all. And what that speaks to, very particularly, I think, is personal evangelism and missions. Christ has given His gospel to His church and to no one else, and we are a part of that church. And we cannot be silent about it. We must let others know, even as somebody let us know, it's not optional. It's a joy. And we must figure out ways to bring the mercy and message of Christ collectively to our city and to the world. It's a big, big deal. But then secondly, it should compel us to sacrifice everything if necessary to do battle against all manner of human sin and wickedness and death, starting in our own hearts and lives and then emanating out into our family, into our office, you know, into our school and to our relationships and into the city and into the world. We ought to live lives that are about, by the power of God's Spirit, okay, in obedience to His Word and in community with one another, subduing all things in and around us under the feet of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, I'm going to ask you four questions and I'm done. So question number one is, who do you need to talk to about Jesus? Because here's what I've discovered in life. You know, it's typically somebody you already know, isn't it? Like to ask the question is to answer it 95% of the time. So then do it. Talk to that person. Is that not the most loving thing that you could do for that person? And in fact, if that person knows that you're a believer and has any understanding of heaven and hell and the gospel and all of the stuff that you believe, I mean, if you were them, wouldn't you think to yourself, man, I think if this person actually cared about me, like if they really believe this stuff, why aren't they telling me? I might not buy it, but why would they not share it? So secondly, what do you need to do in terms of the way that you live to reposture your life in such a way as to more actively participate in Jesus' gospel mission to the city and to the world? What do you need to do? Because again, everything that we build dies. Accept God's kingdom. Thirdly, what is the manner of human sin and wickedness? What beast, okay, just to use that language within you, do you need by the power of God's Spirit and obedience to His Word and in community with a few good brothers and sisters to place under the feet of Jesus. And I've created a list and I'll share it with you, but we each have our own list, do we not? So I'm going to throw this one out there because I think a lot of us are wrestling with this. What about the beast of fear? We are living in a scary world, or at least it seems that way, doesn't it? I don't know if this is the scariest the world has ever been. I really don't. I think every generation claims that. and Not every generation is right about that. But I think it may be the case that it feels scarier than it's ever felt because absolutely every gruesome, fearsome, awesome, unbelievably terrible thing that happens anywhere in the world is then put on a 24-hour newsreel and sent to us via our telephones, via the television, via our computer, all of this stuff. 
The whole of the media is designed to draw us in like a soap opera in such a way that we think that if we stop watching it, if we tune out for a minute, the world is somehow going to end and we're not going to know it. And I'm not saying bury your head in the sand, but I am saying, say, how much of this is actually good for my soul? And then govern yourself accordingly in terms of intake. But my goodness, it feels like the world by day by day is getting darker and then darker and then darker and then darker. And that does not engender ease in our hearts. So I think it's helpful to come to a passage of Scripture like this and to be reminded from God's Word that the King is on His throne irrespective of how it may look to us. And by faith, we need to receive that and recognize that the infinite cannot be comprehended completely by the finite. He's infinite. We're not. And the reality is that when we try to require God to condescend to our finite minds so that we can understand all of His ways and everything that He's up to so that we can then relax, we're being unreasonable. The king is on his throne. There is not a molecule in the whole of this universe that is outside of his control. And there is nothing, not even the most wicked and awful of things, that he is not going to redeem in the end and use to further his purposes. And every day that seems to get darker is only marching God's people toward a day in which there will be nothing but light. Time is not our enemy. Time is our friend. Maybe it's misplaced trust. I throw that out there because you may have noticed this is an election year. And the same media that draws us in pulls us into the soap opera, which is politics. Draws us in in an unhealthy way, I think. And calls us to place our trust in a particular person who cannot and will not deliver at least on everything that they propose to deliver They cannot bring to an end everything that we're looking to bring to an end and longing to see delivered. They they can't deliver that. We need to trust in the Lord. We need to remember that our citizenship is in heaven. We need to allow that to govern over everything else that we do and how we handle ourselves in this very volatile season. Is it the beast of pride? Is it the beast of materialism that consumes you? Leaves no space for anything else that is involving the kingdom? Is it selfishness? Is it lust? Is it guilt? Because the gospel of a risen Jesus who in the end destroys all of those things and raises us up from the dust, guys, cuts that stuff down at the knees. It shows us how trivial those things are. And we need to disabuse ourselves of it. So what beast within you do you need to place under the feet of Jesus? And then last question, what manner of human sin and wickedness, what beast around you do you need to place under the feet of Jesus? Like what's the beast in your family that needs to be subdued by God's Spirit so that God can be all in all in your family? And it may be your schedule. But what is it? What is it for your school? What is it for this city? Like what peculiar passion of of justice has God placed into your heart that you need to make room for in your life to pursue? And the same for the world because, again, Paul isn't telling us all of this to, you know, kind of bring us up to speed on some stuff. He's correcting our errant thinking so that he might correct 
our errant living so that we might not waste our lives, but instead spend them, spend them on that which matters most. So think about that and what that means for you. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you for your word. And we do praise you for our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that what Adam has done and what we have compounded again and again and again and again in Christ has been and will be utterly and thoroughly and completely undone for the undeserving people who recognize their need for that Jesus and who run to him with empty hands that they might receive from him everything. Lord, he has earned our everything, your everything. And in his own price, he has freely offered it to us. May we receive it. God, awaken us from our stupor as is right that we might know how to live for the one who has purchased us by the expense of his own life and purchased us not for 30 or 40 or 50 or 80 or 110 years, but for all of eternity. Help us to build the kingdom that alone matters in this world and in the next. And Lord, let us be a part of that great throng together with many others who come to know Christ and enjoy that day with us for whom God is finally, completely, thoroughly, and fully, all in all, no competition, no struggle, no sin, no death. Do this, we pray, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.